some of my favorite worst first date stories from you guys. This first one's from Matt Jordan Cohen to you. Uh, she says, I was really into this guy, but I was so nervous on our first date that when he told me, you smell good, I replied, thanks. I used both my, <laughs> both my nostrils. <laughs> this one's from at Anna Banana, oh. 0626. Uh, she says, I was walking ahead of him and got into the car parked out front before he could open the door for me. He knocked on the window and yelled through the glass, this isn't my car. <laughs> it's a Mercedes Benz, I kind of like yeah. it. Whose car is this? <laughs> I'll wait. Uh, this one's from at Forever Smiling 2. She says, on my first date, uh, my first time even at a sushi place, I decided to order 13 rolls. I thought rolls meant individual pieces of sushi. The servers had to push two tables together just to hold them all. Like, 13 rolls of sushi. All right, whatever you say. Bring them, keep bringing them. This one's from at Linda Childers 1. She said, a friend once set me up on a blind date. I wasn't in a great mood because I had received a traffic ticket a few hours before. My day got worse when my blind date turned out to be the cop who gave me the ticket. Oh! What? Well, we certainly can and have made some bad relationships. Decisions, haven't we? Um, uh, either past, present, or certainly future will continue to make those bad decisions. Uh, and I, I actually kind of want to start by saying today something that some of you may be mildly offended by. It might bother you a little bit, but just I think an observation that we need to be aware of as we kind of enter into this conversation today that I just in general think that we think we're better at relationships than we actually are that we think we're better at dating, we think we're better at being engaged, we think we're better at being married, we think we're better in relationships in general, um, better, we think we're better than we actually are. Now, I realize some of you may think to yourself, whoa, Pastor Taylor, I, I, I'm not claiming to be that good at relationships, I never claim to be that good at relationships. And so then my follow-up question to you is gonna be, so what are you doing to get better? I mean, how many times have you read a, a book about marriage, if that's eventually your goal, or maybe you're already married? And I'm not talking like a touchy-feely, feel-good book about marriage. I'm talking a book that's kind of grounded in, in psychological and scientific research about relationships um, that really makes you have to face some of the realities in your marriage life. How many of you have read a dating book or gone to a, a marriage seminar or retreat? How many of you have ever sought counseling specific for relationships? How many of you have ever even done a Bible study specifically concerning the topic of dating and relationships and, and marriage? Now, others of you might think to yourself, well, I actually think I'm kind of good at dating. I think I'm kind of good at, at being in relationships. So then my question to you is going to be, well, then what have you done to get better? Because certainly you have made some mistakes in your relationship past. So what are you doing in your life, especially right now, especially in a time when relationally it's really hard to connect because we can't connect so well physically that, that we can get better in this time when we're spending some more time than not in isolation? Now, I think part of, the reason, part of the reason why we tend to think those things about ourselves that we're maybe better than we actually are is because we don't think in terms of what we have to get better at. We think more in terms of, well, if I just find the right person, then everything will work out. Everything will be okay. And we've talked about this before, but that right person idea is, is really a myth. 
that we fall victim to this myth right here, the right person myth. In other words, that if you just find the right person, if you just find that, that right person out and about or on, online or, or whatever it is, um, you won't need marriage books. You won't need seminars. You won't need ever to do counseling. In fact, if you do counseling, that means, maybe suggests that means that that person isn't actually the right person, that that person is the wrong person, and that things aren't going well, and something needs to change. They're not actually the right person. Or you've had that right person experience. You found that someone that just, I mean, it kind of catches your breath a little bit, you know? You're like, wow, they're pretty exciting. They're pretty intriguing. And I'd like to get to know them more. And so you get to know them more. And the more and more you think about it, and the more and more you think about them, you think, wow, they're, they're kind of like the right person for me. I think this could be it. And then, you know, the more you talk and the more you spend time together, you know, it gets a little heated. You start to get connected more. It gets a little spicy, uh, a little chemistry going on. And, and you think to yourself, this is nice because spice is nice. Who doesn't like a little spunk in their relationship? Some of you thought to yourself, well, I haven't felt this way in years. Maybe some of you thought to yourself, I've never felt this way before. And you want to get close to that person. You want to be with them more because of how it makes you feel. And it's filling parts of your life that you knew were there or you didn't know that were there that are being filled. And, and it's just an emotional kind of overload. And so then you think, um, you know, well, why don't we just get started with the whole intimacy thing? So you start that direction. And then you think, well, we just got to get even closer because this is the right person. So then you move in together. Okay. And then maybe it gets to the point where it's just so good. You even thank God for this right person. You go to God and you say, God, this is, this is good. This is good, and I am just so appreciative. If you had anything to do with this, I'm so appreciative for you. Even, you might have even said to God, maybe God, I'll, I'll consider going back to church because you work miracles, Lord. Consider, not actually that you would go, but you'd at least consider going to church. And while you're saying that, God's sitting there like, well, why are you bringing me into this now? Because so far in this relationship, it's all been about the right person and nothing to do with me. So why are you bringing in me, me into this now? But then after a few months of dating, a few months of engagement, a few months of being married, a few years of being married, a few kids into the relationship, some problems start coming up. Why? Where did those problems come from? What's happening here? It's because the right person idea is a myth. The idea of that, that feel-good spiciness in the relationship or chemistry in the relationship, that spark that you're having, that will not last. That will not endure. Think about, think about some of your friends uh, that you know that have gotten divorced. Maybe even you can think about your own experience if, you, if you've been through a divorce. Think about why or what reason you gave for that divorce. Now, maybe you gave some side examples like, well, you know, they cheated or there was some communication issues or, or things like that. Um, or honestly, just anytime you've broken up with someone, you give some reasons. But ultimately, think about this. Deep down, what you really just think to yourself was, well, they're just not the right person for me. Or they weren't the right person for them. That must ultimately be the reason why it didn't work out. Despite the fact that you or they have never taken a class in dating or marriage, never read a book on it, 
And they tried counseling, but they tried counseling in the last few months of the relationship when things had fallen so far into disrepair that it would take um, short of a miracle for that person and that relationship to repair itself. Even though you've done nothing to get better at it, you just somehow expect it to get better because if they were the right person, it would just work itself out, right? Dating people, especially dating people, isn't it true that, or at least possibly could be true, that we spend more time finding someone than becoming the someone worth finding? I'm going to say that again. We spend more time finding someone than becoming the someone worth finding. We spend more time on Tinder. We spend more time trying to find a relationship than we do learning about the relationships that we could have. We, we really try uh, hard to just meet someone instead of trying to learn about the God who created the someone who you want to meet. That you find someone and it doesn't work out. You just think to yourself, well, it's not the right person. And so you just leave and you walk away or you get a divorce. But then why then is it that when you try the second time, it still doesn't work out all that well? Or why is it just in general that the marriage statistics of divorce, like your first, uh, the, the chance of you ending a divorce is somewhere and people disagree on this number exactly. But I think according to the American Psychological Institution, um, it was like 40 to 50%. And then the second marriage when, when things, you know, you meet that second person and things get spicy again, you're like, oh, maybe this is the right person. And then that has a 60% or approximately chance of failure. And then the third person, oh man, this time it's going to be it. And there's spice again. And, you know, we're just at this place in life where we're ready to finally settle down and it's going to be better. We've matured, all that kind of stuff. And the third marriage chance of, of success or divorce, excuse me, is around 70%. Those are astronomically high numbers. Why is it that the chance of failure is so high on the third time? Because nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in your heart. Nothing has changed in their heart. No one has changed. You're the same. That means your problems are still the same. They've not changed, which means their problems still have not changed. My friends, there is no such thing as a marriage problem. There's just two people with problems that get married, two imperfect people that get married that have problems. And then they bring their problems together in really close daily proximity. Now, I'm not saying this is game over, like, oh my gosh, we all have problems that we're imperfect people, so therefore we shouldn't try anymore. Not at all what I'm saying. In fact, some of the key theological ideas behind Christianity is that we have to come to terms with the fact that we are imperfect people. That's a kind of a key idea. But the other key idea, which we're going to talk about today, is that we're not supposed to stay that way. We're supposed to go somewhere. We're supposed to become someone. And dating people, you have a real advantage. You have the ability to have a little heads up on this whole situation to focus more on becoming the someone worth finding than just finding someone. I think this could just be an incredible game changer for you and for all, re all relationships. Because you're sitting there like, you know, Taylor, I'm struggling to find someone. But just imagine, what if everyone that you were trying to find took time to focus more on becoming someone worth finding than just finding someone. Don't you think then there would be more people out there worth finding? That when the opportunity came, you and they would be ready, not just for short-term chemistry, but for long-term 
love. For the next 15 minutes or so that we have left, I want to focus not on other people. I want to focus on you. And I want to focus on you and this question. Who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Because my friends, you cannot change others. As much as you try, you cannot change others. Listen, you have not been able to successfully change your coworker. And you know who I'm talking about, that coworker? That coworker. Yeah, you haven't been able to change them, right? Your parents haven't been able to change them. Your in-laws definitely haven't been able to change them. Your kids, you're still working on it, but parents, just so you know, you're going to get to that age and it is going to be nearly impossible to change them. You have some influence, but your goal is not to change them. Then why in the world, if it's not possible to change all of those people, do we think to ourselves it is possible to change our spouse? It is possible to change that person that we're dating. It is borderline impossible to change that person. What you need to do, what, what God teaches us is to focus on what we can change and let that light of our change and what's happening in our life go out to those around us. That we would not fall victim to the right person myth, that we would lean into becoming the someone worth finding, the someone worth being with. So who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? And some of you are thinking to yourself, well, I'm becoming a lot of things, Taylor. I'm, I'm becoming better at my job. You know, I'm, 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 you know, I have the goal and obviously right now things are a bit challenging, but I have the goal to get a promotion, become maybe a district manager or top salesperson or something along those lines. Some of you are maybe learning something like a fun hobby or something. Maybe you're working on becoming uh, better looking, right? You know, it's a little conceited, but that's fine. You know, you're doing your hair a little different, trying something out. You're working out to get a better look and hey, I'm all for health, but really what is your motivation? for that. Some of you are trying to become wealthier. My friends, those in and of themselves are not terrible things, as we talked about in week one and a matter of priority. The problem is they're just not meant to or created to or intended to last. They won't last for the long term. How many of you have set a goal of becoming better relationships, becoming better at dating, becoming kinder, becoming more compassionate, becoming someone who can navigate difficult conversations and difficult situations better, that you have set that internal goal, just as you have set your work goals internally or your financial goals internally. Maybe you've written them down, maybe you haven't, but you have those goals. How many of you set relationship as a key goal? I want to convince you that what's better than trying to find the right person, what's greater, if we're going to do a little math equation, greater than that is being better at love and being better at relationships. That if you can get better at this part, you will be able to endure the hurdles of life so much better that when pandemics come your way and the right person falls apart, you know how to navigate it relationally. You know how to uh, navigate it in a loving, compassionate way. When kids come along, I tell you what, this is going to get you through navigating parenting. When you have job challenges, this is what's going to get you through. When you have financial hurdles, health issues, this is going to get you through. And I'm not talking about like the, you know, the, uh, you know, the soft hug it all out kind of a love. I'm talking about God kind of a love. Jesus modeled it kind of a love. Love that endures. Love that moves people. Love that takes a bit of work. 
but it's powerful. And it can transform lives, including your own. Dating people. You talk to a married person who's been married for a while, they will tell you, we're all becoming someone. People change. People change over time. The right person will not be the same person years from now. The right person will not be the same person years from now. Personally, I'll just speak to it from my, my own experience. Ten years ago, I was an agnostic, which means I definitely was not a pastor. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, I was single, and I was just finishing school. Ten years later, today, I'm a pastor. I'm married. I completed a lot more school. I don't know why, but to do this better, I guess. And I'm now a, pa- uh, I'm now a father to two kids. Ten years. A lot has changed. My wife has been through a lot, but she will, without hesitation, tell you that I am better at love and relationships and I'm the right person. Kidding. Nobody laughed in the room. I'm assuming my wife didn't laugh at home. (laughs) Okay, so anyways, really consider how can I become better at love? How can I, this question, next slide, how can I become better at love? How can I become someone who loves better? Now, the simplest answer to this question is you need to understand love up here and let God work in here. Understanding what love really means up here and letting God work in here. Because if you go to the Bible, uh, the B-I-B-L-E, the book for me, that whole thing, if you open that up and you try to read about and try to figure out um, and and answer the question or find someone that's right for you, there's not going to be a lot of helpful tips for how to find someone that's right for you, okay? But if you open up the pages of the Bible and try to read God's story through the lens of how can I become someone worth finding, the pages of the Bible, the stories of the Bible will come alive. There's a couple stories about how not to find the right person, okay? But when you read it through the lens of becoming the right person, it changes everything. Because, because God's story is all about how he loves us, models love for us, how he reconciles when we do wrong, how he reconciles us to himself, how he's all about transforming you, how he's all about bringing you to be the right version of you. It's all about becoming something new. And so with our remaining time, I want to look at, to try to convince you even more of this and to give you some practical tools for navigating love and better relationships, I want to talk about a couple of verses that are known as the love verses, okay? And we usually cover this little bit of passage at least once a year. And if you go to a wedding somewhere in there too, you get double dose of this. And I realize for some of you, you're like, Taylor, I know exactly what you're talking about. First Corinthians chapter 13, I memorized it when I was a kid. So talking about it now is kind of just beating a dead horse, so to speak. So could you, you know, find some new scripture? Uh, I could, but there is, this is just so rich and incredible. And, And my friends, I tell you, just me processing through this and working through this couple of verses myself was exceptionally helpful. It was a reminder that I really needed when it comes to what does it look like to become someone who loves better. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to touch on just a couple of the things that Paul, who authored 1 Corinthians, a letter to a small church in Corinth 2,000 years ago, how he described love, especially as he looked at God and Jesus and looked at what they did and wrote down, hey, when I see love, this is what I think love is. Is Okay, so we're going to just touch on a couple of them, so be patient with me, um, and you need to be patient with me, because love is 
Patient, yeah, some people in the room actually got it. And by people, I mean like three. Um, love is patient, okay? Say, actually, you know what? Let's just say this together because the room did a great job. So you at home, we're going to say this out loud like we really mean it. Love is patient. patient. Yeah, nobody at home actually did it because they know I can't hear them. But let's be honest, neither can your neighbors. So let's try it again, saying it out loud. Here we go. Love is patient. patient. Yeah, so your spouse in the other room can actually hear it. Yes, love is patient. The problem is two people get together with the idea that as long as they find the right person, they don't need to be patient. They won't have to be patient because it'll just work out. But there will be a disagreement. It is inevitable. And emotions will flare. And if you have not practiced the art of being patient, you will not be ready to navigate the relationship and it will cost you relationally. Unfortunately, today, patience equates to a whole lot of this right here. Sounds like some of you signing up for porch pictures, okay? <clears throat> you're, just, you're just getting on your phone, you know? Things aren't going well, and so you just pull out your phone, and you just focus on that. That's like your getaway. That's your walk away. That's your ignore it away, avoid it away response. Now, when you start dating intentionally, when you get married, you can't avoid it. You can't get on your phone because it will make it worse. Here's the thing about patience. Patience also means being present. And we don't generally connect the two of these two words. We don't connect patience with presence. We think patience is something that we can do and just walk away from. That's not patience. Patience requires engagement. Now, maybe you certainly, I get it, you need some time to cool off, okay? Things are getting a little heated. That's a good idea. The research says you need about 20 minutes to let the, the hormones and emotions of what's happening in your body when you get emotionally, you know, kind of bent out of shape uh, to come down. You need 20 minutes. I'm not talking about that not being a good idea. I'm talking about when you disengage. I'm talking about when you get defensive, when you start stonewalling. That isn't patience because you're not present anymore. And I need you to get this idea that when you are not present in your patience, it is like you are injecting pain into the relationship. It is like you are taking a syringe of pain and putting it right into the relationship when you disconnect like that. Relationships, the opposite of relationship is disconnecting. And so you have to be present. Patience is being patient. Patience is being present in, in the times in which someone else is not respectful, but you are. When someone else is not being very humble, but that you go into that moment and you're humble. Someone else is just talking your ear off and you go into that with a listening ear and curiosity. Even when people are not being engaged, you are engaged. You are being patient with them. Even when they are rude, you are kind. That's patient. God does this with us all the time. You think you get frustrated with people and politicians and government and family members and all that stuff. Just imagine what God the creator who sent his son to die for the world thinks about people sometimes. He can get a little frustrated. And if you were in his position, seeing all that was going on, I think you might be a little frustrated too, but he doesn't. He says, even when we go to him, we haven't prayed to him in months, years maybe even, we go to him and we say, God, I really need you in this moment. He is patient and he is present. 
He's not on his phone texting. He loves you. He's engaged. Love is also kind. Love is kind, kind, generous, thoughtful, sympathetic, considerate, caring. I know for some of you, you're thinking to yourself, God did not make me very kind then. I'm just not exactly predisposed to being exceptionally kind. That's not necessarily how God created you. That's just how people in the world have influenced you. It is more likely that your parents just didn't do a great job of modeling it for you more than anything. And thus, you're not comfortable being generous, thoughtful, sympathetic, considerate, and caring. You're not very comfortable being kind. But God most definitely was very clear when he's engaged in the world in the past. And God was very clear when he sent Jesus down about what kindness looks like. And so I'd encourage you to read through how did Jesus demonstrate kindness in the world? Now, when it comes to your dating life, relational life, you need to bring a better, kindness means bringing a better degree of clarity to the situation. I don't know about you, but it really drives me crazy when I hear stories about people who are dating and like one person has kind of been done dating that other person for a month or two and they're just dragging them along because they think kindness means not hurting them and causing them pain. And so they'd rather just drag them along than being honest that it's just not working and it's not over. That is not kind. Kindness clarifies boundaries relationally. Even in marriages, there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of give and take, and there's a lot of requirement for grace in a marriage. And if you go into it and you are not kind and clarifying the boundaries of what you're comfortable, you know, contributing to the marriage or where the lines are for you, they can change. But in that moment, if you don't clarify that, that is not kind. If you don't tell people your perspective, the how do I feel about this kind of moment, if you don't tell people how you feel, things can easily fall apart. And I think I would go so far as to suggest there is a loss of kindness when you do not share how you feel. Now, there are bad ways, bad ways to share how you feel. That's why you got to pick up a book called Crucial Conversations and you need to read, excuse me, you need to read it at least twice about how do I bring how I feel to the table in a kind and considerate way and then have a healthy dialogue on it. Now, I just want to let you in on a little secret here. So tune in if you've kind of tuned out. You can practice this, what we've just talked about, patience, kindness, and you can practice what we're about to talk about right now. You can practice this, hear me on this, right now. Not just in your dating relationships, or maybe you don't even have any of those right now, but in just your relationships in general, you can take this opportunity to take one of these ideas. Hey, this week I'm going to work on patience. This week I'm going to work on kindness. Lord, help me. Help me. Marriage vows, despite popular belief, do not fix anything. They're just promises that people will eventually break. I still think it's important to make them and to stand up in front of others and make those vows. Otherwise, I wouldn't do weddings. But they are not a solution. They're a promise. Love is kind is something you have to practice. Practice. Love does not envy. It does not envy. Envy, well, honestly, you just need to watch last week's message on comparison because this happens all the time in relationships. Envy, and you can have this in relationships, uh, not just friendships. You can have this in, in dating relationships, marriage and in, in engagement kind of relationships. It, it's 
when envy starts to creep into a relationship is when you start envying what your spouse has, especially around just happiness and joy. Like, I don't want you to be happy when I'm not. That is envy. You're envying the other person's happiness. When you say, I'm not going to be happy for you. Instead, I'm going to drag you into my unhappiness. My friends, you are annihilating, annihilating. That's a strong word, but it is true. You are annihilating your relationship. You are annihilating your marriage. Envy drives the ideas of one-upmanship, of I have to win the conversation. Like, if you get it, well, then I have to get it too. And, and envy drives just bad parenting. Like, you try to be the, the parent that your kids really like. And so you compromise your relationship with your spouse just to be the parent in the relationship that the kids like more. That's envy. You may, maybe never thought of it that way, but it is envy. Envy is beaten when you celebrate genuinely with love the other person's wins. Hey, your boss complimented you. I am so proud of you. Great job. You had a breakthrough in your life. You, you tackled something uh, that was been challenging you, holding you back. You, you got time to, to work out. I'm so glad for you. You don't go into, oh, wow, you got time to work out. Well, I didn't get time to work out. I was home watching the kids, cleaning, paying the bills. And so now it's my turn. That's envy. That's envy. You have to first, not, not actually, not first. You just have to, period, love your spouse. Love your spouse. Love them. Then you can approach problems. But do not, because spouses, and once you start to see it, you'll recognize it happening. You know when the other person is operating and getting angry out of a place of envy, not out of a place of love. They're saying, hey, I've been at home all day working on this, doing this, doing this. I could use some help. Versus going after a spouse and saying, hey, I've been doing all this and you get to have all the fun. That's envy. And people recognize that. That's not love. You can address that. Crucial Conversations, another, that, that book, you just, it'll help you navigate these things. But to say, hey, I am first and foremost not going to compromise the love I have for you but I still can bring up concerns that I have. I'm going to be proud of you and celebrate your wins and love you. But then after, at another time, in another setting, I'm going to bring up some of my concerns in a healthy and responsible way. Love does not envy. Single people, especially, this next part is critical for you, okay? Love does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. In other words, you are not going to be a part of someone else's regret story. You do not date in a way where other people will be left years later feeling ashamed. Thinking to themselves, I trusted that man, I trusted that woman, and I shouldn't have. And that hurt me. You cannot dishonor others by uh, making your motives seem pure, but deep down you know they're not especially in the area of intimacy. Love does not dishonor others. It can be in small things too, you know? You can treat him or her in, a, in, in kind of a, a negative way or, or you can, um, you know, resist some of the values of love and kindness and compassion in small ways and it will progressively dishonor the other person. And my friends, especially if you're dating, you may not regret it, regret it now, but in your 30s, your 40s, and your 50s, you will. 
You will. You'll think to yourself, I should have known better. I should have done better. I shouldn't have dishonored. Finally, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no records of wrong. It keeps no records of wrong. In a disagreement, I don't know if you've recognized this before, but I just want you to think of maybe your most recent disagreement. Most people actually agree on about 90%. It's just the last 10% that causes the disagreement. Especially most couples, especially if you've been together a while, you agree on the main ideas. You agree that you should be a great parent. You, sh- you agree that you should prioritize your finances in this way. The issue is, I think you said this, and I, uh, I didn't like that. Or um, I remember it going this way. Or I just don't agree with this little sliver of what you said. Or you used this word and I didn't like that word. We've got to stop and just agree that if you're at the point where you agree on 90% of things, do not keep a record of the last 10%. You need to ask yourself, do I need to insert a little grace into this moment? It's as if love is blind sometimes. Because if you keep a tally of wrongs in your relationships, you are destroying those relationships at the very least in your heart, if not the other person's. You are destroying the relationship because we are imperfect. We are sinful people. We will fall short. And if you keep a tally of wrong, if God kept a tally of wrong with what we did wrong, we would be in a bit of a challenging place. Now, certainly there are unsafe situations in which you need to leave, that you need to be aware of the wrongs and walk away. But more often than not, we let that last 10% ruin the good 90. We believe in imperfect people, but we also believe in a perfect God that's all about forgiving our sins. Why? Because God so loved the world and so loved you that he gave his one and only son to save you. Not to condemn you, not to condemn you, but to save you. So I will hope you will leave today asking the question, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Because this can make a difference. This can be all the difference. It could have made a difference, and some of you realize this, in your parents' marriage, like how they treated you, had they gone into their relationship with the attitude of how, who am I becoming, it could have changed everything for you. It could have kept their marriage together. It could have been the model that you know that you kind of missed. So why not work on becoming that better parent now, especially before you even become one, but if you've already become one, that you're leaning into it seriously now. Becoming someone worth finding, it will help you define the other's that are out there, that are also in the same place as you, that are hoping, praying, and working on becoming the someone worth finding. I'm not saying, y'all, I'm not saying that spice is bad in a relationship, chemistry is bad. I'm not saying that at all, okay? It's just when it drives dishonoring decisions, that one night decision, that one weekend decision, that few month decision, Because what will make it last is not the chemistry. What will make it last is the love and how good you are at it and who you model your love after. Hopefully, you model it after God and his kind of love. 
You think dating and marriage is hard these days in the middle of a pandemic, which is encouraging you to make anxious, rash, hard decisions. Pause and ask yourself in the middle of this challenging time, who am I becoming? And start now. Start with patience. Read the whole section of 1 Corinthians. Learn what love is. Print it off and put it on your, you know, window or your mirror in your bathroom. Print, uh, you know, take a screenshot, put it on your phone. So every time you unlock your phone, there it is reminding you and pick one area and start working on it. Study it and invite God. Say, God, I invite you into my life to transform me into your son's image. Help me to grow and become who you have intended me to be. If you would, bow your heads close your eyes and pray with me. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us. Help us wherever this lands with us because there's going to be part of us that just kind of fights back against us who says, now nah, we got this under control or I deserve to live my life this way and, and this is kind of running contrary to, to who I want to be right now or what I want to do or or how I want to move forward, or God, I'm just afraid that if, if I take time to become someone uh, different, I'm going to miss the someone, that, that, that right person out there. That wherever this lands with us, we would lean into, lean on trusting you, trusting your model of love, and that if we lean into that, if we honor you through following your son, that you will help us to find that someone. And we will be ready when we do. That maybe we're already with someone that now is the time where we really start to become the person you have intended us to be. And we wouldn't put that burden on the other person in the relationship that we would take that opportunity onto ourselves to learn and grow and become someone that is honoring you and honoring those in close proximity and close relationship with us. Help us not shy away from the truth that looking at what love is really calls us to be. Help us to lean into your version of love, Lord, not ours. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.